Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Um, This morning's reading is in your bulletin. Uh, It comes from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will, will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift up his head high. We've been studying David for several months now, and and David is worthy of study because much of the Old Testament is written about or by David. And we, we've been talking about how David is a figure who points forward to the Messiah, the king who will sit on David's throne, the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we talked about a few weeks ago. And here in Psalm 110, David tells us what that king will look like. And most Jews then and and most today believe this was a psalm that, was a, that painted a picture of the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would rescue Israel from its enemies. But what I want to do today is change our perspective a little bit. We've been looking at how David points forward to the future of Christ. What I want to do is look back the other direction, to take a look at how the New Testament writers looked back and read the Old Testament, particularly the Messianic Psalms. And by considering how the New Testament writers saw Jesus in the Old Testament, I'm hopeful that we will learn a little bit more about who Jesus was, what he did, what he came to do, and what he's doing still. And that's important because one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that it's centered on a person. It's obvious, of course, that our understanding of who Jesus is determines how we respond to him, but... It's also true that our understanding of who Jesus is, to a very large extent, determines how we respond to those people around us. And so I think it's a safe bet to say that our society would be a lot less messed up today if people knew more about Jesus Christ. But if anything, people are moving away from understanding Jesus. A few years ago, the Huffington Post ran a story about a new book that purported to reveal the truth that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and had two children. And the Huffington Post headline was this, Jesus' marriage to Mary the Magdalene is fact, not fiction. And when that book came out, many academics and and, uh, media pundits predicted it would be the end of Christianity. And then you'll remember a few years earlier, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, sold several million copies, making more or less the same claim. And of course, both books have been uh, largely discredited since then, but it just shows people who don't know the truth can be led 
astray. We see in the Gospels that many of Jesus' own followers, the apostles, many times, especially in his early ministry, didn't really understand who Jesus was or what he was trying to do. To some extent, I think we have to give them a little slack because they didn't have the New Testament. At Jesus' crucifixion, Paul, uh, Peter's first sermon, uh, Paul's uh, conversion, not a word of the New Testament had yet been written. The only scriptures they had were the Old Testament, and three years, of course, experience watching how Jesus read the Old Testament and understood the Old Testament. And though it took them a while, they finally did figure out who Jesus was and what he was trying to tell them, because they eventually did gain an understanding of how the Old Testament should be interpreted in light of Christ. And this psalm was obviously critical to that theology because the New Testament writers would quote it more often than any other scripture in the Old Testament. It was used by Peter on his first sermon at Pentecost. It was uh, quoted by the writer of Hebrews, quoted by Paul in several of his letters, in fact, quoted by Jesus in Matthew and Mark when he's debating with the Pharisees about uh, his own identity. It's incredibly rich. It's incredibly deep. I'm told Martin Luther gave seven sermons on this psalm and despaired that he hadn't fully mined its meaning. So what hope do I have in 30 minutes? Here we go. We're going to give it a try. Psalm uh, 110 really tells us everything about who Jesus is, about what he came to do. Uh, it shows us he was divine king. He was everlasting priest. He was conquering deliverer. So we're going to explore what that means. Divine king, everlasting priest, conquering deliverer. We're going to start with Matthew 22 and Mark 12. They both speak of the same event. Jesus is uh, gathering huge crowds around him. He's, got, he's building this following. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're getting concerned that Jesus is getting so much attention and recognition. So they advise a plan to embarrass Jesus. And one day, as Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, they start a debate. They're hoping he'll say something stupid, at least something to alienate some faction of his following. And so it's a little bit like a congressional committee hearing, except with both political parties attacking you. And so they ask him a series of questions. First, they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? It's a, it's a political question. And then they ask him a theological question about the resurrection. And then they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And each time, Jesus answers their questions perfectly, beautifully, surprisingly. He leaves them speechless, unable to respond. In fact, they achieve the, exactly the opposite of what they're trying to do. In fact, Matthew says, when the crowds heard Jesus' answers, they were astonished at his teaching. And so... While the leaders are off mumbling to themselves someplace in the corner, trying to figure out how to regain the, the momentum, how to recoup, Jesus turns the tables on them. Jesus says, now it's my turn. Now I'm going to ask you a question. And we read about it here in Matthew 22, starting at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies 
under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. He, sa he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, Psalm 110. And then he looks at them and says, if this is David's son, why does David call him Lord? And Matthew says, the religious leaders are stunned, they're speechless. It says, they don't even dare ask him any more questions. So what just happened? There's a debate going on. He asks them a question. They throw up their, their hands. Here's what Jesus is saying. If David is the author of Psalm 110, and pretty much everybody then and most people still today think that's true, if the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, well, who is that? Jesus is saying if, if this Messiah, this Lord that David is talking about is one of David's descendants, and that's all he is, then David would have called him son. He would have said, the Lord said to my son. He would never have called him Lord unless the Messiah is someone greater than a mere human being. And we get another clue, not just by how David speaks of this Lord, but from what God says to him. Because here in the rest of verse 1, Yahweh says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He always says, sit at my right hand. He doesn't say, sit down at my feet, sit down with the rest of the saints. He puts the Messiah on a level uh, plane with himself. And if that's not clear enough, here's what verse 2 says. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And there it is. Yahweh's telling David's Lord to share his throne, to rule with him. The same throne, the same scepter, the same reign, the same rule. Jesus is saying, hey, Pharisees and Sadducees and religious scholars, you've got it all wrong. Messiah isn't just a political ruler. He's, he's greater than David. He's David's Lord. Jesus is saying, Messiah is me, and I'm God. And that shut their mouths. Now, They'd heard Jesus calling himself God before. It's all over the place. When he forgives sin, when he accepts worship, when he claims the forbidden name of God, I am. In one place he says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. In Luke 10 he says, I saw Satan fall out of heaven like lightning. Really? Satan? And that drives the religious leaders crazy because quite simply he either is who he says he is or he's the worst kind of blasphemer. He's a liar, he's a con man, he's crazy. Or he's God. These people can't take Jesus because he challenges everything they believe. They believe Messiah will be a great military figure, a political leader. They think he'll free Israel from Rome's oppression. And so when Jesus shows up and he's none of those things, they have no use for him. And when he turns the table on them and challenges them, they clam up. They throw up their hands. They snort and stalk off. And there's a ton of people still doing that today. Now in our culture, in our Western humanist postmodern culture, it's not a great military leader we're looking for. It's not even a political figure. Today in our culture, it's this. My God is a God of tolerance. He's not up there keeping a record of every little thing. My God never judges. But don't you see, 
What you're saying when you're saying your God never judges is he never challenges you. He never questions you. You're doing the same thing the Pharisees did. When you meet the real God, a God who turns the tables, who questions you, you're snorting and stalking off. That's what we so often do with God. We don't like the God who created us, so we create one we do like, one who doesn't talk back. And that's heartbreaking because you'll never create a God that's as loving and beautiful and generous as the real God. A God who can't challenge you, can't question you, can't make demands on your life, that's a God that can't change you. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not a solution to your political problem. I'm more than that. I'm not David's son, I'm David's Lord. He says, I'm not here to be the Messiah you want. I'm here to be the Messiah you need. But the astonishment doesn't end there. Because in Psalm 110, David says, the Christ will not just be a king equal with God. That's wild enough, right? He says, Christ will be a priest. Let's look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's fascinating because the Jews of Jesus' time and, and those when Psalm 110 was written would have been shocked to read that the Messiah would be both king and priest. It's a little scandalous, frankly, that David even wrote that because kings were never priests and priests were never kings. And there's three reasons. First, Saul lost the throne, partly for tangling up the two roles of priest and king. When Samuel confronts Saul for being disobedient and not killing the, the livestock of the Amalekites, Saul claims he saved them so he could sacrifice them to God. Saul's assuming the role of priest, and God rejects Saul, at least partly because of that. Second, it was a matter of calling. Kings were placeholders for God. Kings were figures of strength and judgment. Kings enforced the law of God. And if you disobeyed the law, you were punished. Kings brought judgment. Priests were almost exactly the opposite. Priests served as a bridge between the people and God. They made atonement for sin through the sacrificial system. Priests cared for the sick. Remember when Jesus healed the leper, he said, go show yourself to the priest, because priests were responsible for the health and welfare. Priests, priests distributed money to the poor. So the roles of priest and king were very nearly opposite. And the idea of a priest being a king or a king being a priest just wouldn't have made sense to people. And the third reason kings could never be priests is that it was against the law. To be a priest in Israel, you had to be descended from the family of Aaron. You had to be a Levite. But God promised David that the Messiah would come from his family, from his line, the line of Judah. Now, David knew all that, but here in Psalm 110, he still sees a day when Messiah will be both priest and king. And that's extraordinary. And the only way it could work is if there was another priesthood, a priesthood higher than the Levit Levitical priesthood. And startlingly, David remembers Melchizedek. And why is that startling? Because Melchizedek only shows up for three verses in Genesis 14, a thousand years before David writes this psalm. It's here in Genesis 14, starting at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be, Ab 
be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this, this cat named Melchizedek shows up while Abram is talking with the king of Sodom. He, he interrupts the conversation. He feeds Abraham. He blesses Abraham. And then he disappears. And he's never mentioned again for a thousand years until David writes this psalm. It's as if God knew there would be another, higher kind of priesthood that the Levitical priesthood than the Levit- Levitical priesthood. So he brings this character quite literally out of the blue into the Bible. And Jesus tells us, I'm sorry, and Genesis tells us Melchizedek is both priest and king, the first person in the Old Testament, by the way, to be called a priest. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He's king of Salem, the, the king of shalom, the king of peace, of well-being. And unlike most people in Genesis, there's no mention of his genealogy, no mother, no father. A thousand years after David writes Psalm 110, 2,000 years after, roughly after Melchizedek shows up in Genesis, the writer of Hebrews makes much of this lack of genealogy. He says, uh, Melchizedek is a priest without beginning, without end. The writer to Hebrews points out that the problem with the Levites is they could never make a permanent sacrifice for sin. In fact, the whole sacrificial system depended on priests who were just as guilty as the people they were serving. And the, and the blood of livestock could never suffice to atone for human sin, not permanently, not completely. And so the writer to Hebrews says this Melchizedek priesthood is higher than Aaron's priesthood because they're different. One depends on human descent. The other has no beginning. It has no end. And that would have been critical for Jewish converts to Christianity because to them, the idea of anyone, even Messiah, being both priest and and king would have been inconceivable. In fact, if it hadn't been for Melchizedek's priesthood, Christianity might never have taken off at all. Three short verses in the Bible, 2,000 years before Christ made, made all the difference. C.S. Lewis says Melchizedek solved an essential problem for Jews who wanted to convert. Lewis tells us this, for a Jewish convert to Christianity, this was extremely important and removed a difficulty. He might be brought to see how Christ was the successor of David. It'd be impossible to say that he was in a similar sense the successor of Aaron. The idea of his priesthood therefore involved the recognition of a priesthood independent of and superior to Aaron's. What's the point I'm trying to make? The point is this. You'll never understand Jesus Christ. You'll never understand the gospel unless you understand that Jesus Christ was deeply, radically, completely, totally both priest and king. It's the most important thing because Jesus is the one who judges as only kings could. And Jesus is the one who sacrifices as only priests could do. And you have to see that. Not only only was he both priest and king, but he was both in the same measure at the same time. And what do I mean by that? This, if your view of Jesus is skewed so that he's more king than priest or more priest than king, then your theology is going to be skewed. If your view is that Jesus is more king than priest, you'll have a judgmental Jesus, a Jesus who cares more about the rules than grace. But if your view of Jesus is that he's more priest than king, Yeah, you'll have a loving Jesus, but you won't have a holy Jesus, a righteous Jesus. Jonathan Edwards wrote this terrific sermon called The Excellency 
of Jesus Christ. And Edwards uses Revelation chapter 5 to make this point that Jesus Christ combines things no one else ever could or ever has. In Revelation 5, John is talking about his vision. And he says this, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. John is having a vision. He's standing in the throne room of God, and he says, and, and one, and, and he says that one of the elders in his vision told him, look at the lion of Judah. But when he turns to look, instead of seeing a lion, John sees a slain lamb. And Edwards takes that vision of John and says, Jesus is both. He's lion and lamb. He's king who reigns, and he's the priest who's made atonement. And, and I'm going to read this because Jonathan Edwards is this amazing, amazing preacher. It's written in 18th century English, so it's not very accessible, but we're going to talk about it. There's an admiral conjunction or meeting of diverse and paradoxical elements in the person of Jesus Christ. Diverse excellencies, as otherwise would have seemed to be utterly incompatible in the same subject. And Jonathan Edwards is saying, only in Christ do we see qualities that are almost opposite, coexisting easily and perfectly at the same time. Only Christ displays infinite justice and infinite grace. He's a judge, and he's the one who was judged. He's priest, and he's king. And he's all those things at the same time, all at once, not one or the other. How does that work? How do we see that play out in, in the story of Jesus in the Bible? Remember the Dickens story of Scrooge and, and the spirit of Christmas past? We're going to do the same thing. Let's, let's look back in time and, and look over the shoulder of Jesus. First, we see him confronting the Pharisees and, and the religious authorities, and, and he's in their face. He's calling them out for hypocrisy. He's, he's calling them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Now we're at the temple, and we see Jesus fashion a whip and throw money changers out of the temple, indignant at their irreverence, fearless. And now in front of Pilate and the Romans, in front of Herod, in front of the religious leaders, people who will ultimately crucify him, and he doesn't back down. He's bold. Now we see him in a crowd and there's a woman nearby, and they've never met. She's afraid to approach, but she suffered a terrible, debilitating disease all of her adult life. So she reaches out. She touches the robe of Jesus, and instantly she's healed. And she falls trembling at his feet, and Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from suffering. Then look at him go into the room of the little dead girl. And he takes her by the hand and he says, little girl, it's time to get up. And she arises alive with his touch. And then watch him when local religious leaders stir up a mob to stone a woman accused of adultery. Jesus says to the crowd, whichever of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the crowd dejected, drops their stones and walks away. And Jesus says to the woman, has no one condemned you? No, sir, not one. Then neither do I condemn you, he says. Finally, join him at the tomb of Lazarus. 
where he weeps over the very idea of death. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus, but grieves that death ever entered the world, that it caused so much heartache, so much pain, so much suffering. Here's absolute power, unfailing courage, tenderness, and love you and I could never imagine. He's a king and he's a priest. And you'll never see his beauty unless you see both of them and how he brings them together in a way no one else can. Finally, Psalm 110 tells us Jesus is a conquering deliverer. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. David uses this psalm to point us to Messiah, the one who will deliver Israel. But in David's understanding what a deliverer looks like, he sees somebody from Judges. He sees Othniel or Deborah or Gideon. And so in, David, so in verses 5 to 7, David describes the Messiah in terms of these deliverers of old, the ones he knew so well, the ones who, heap, who built up armies and fought the Philistine invaders or, or the Amorites or the Canaanites or whoever. And what did they do? They heaped up bodies. That's what they did. They, they filled the valleys with bodies. That's what David did. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And people today hate that. They say, I want a God of love. This Old Testament God, he's too hateful, he's too violent. Now please, listen, you can't treat Jesus Christ like everyone else. He's different. He's like no one who's ever lived. He's a different kind of deliverer, and he's on a different kind of campaign. That's what it means that Jesus is both king and priest. Jesus is both lion and lamb. Look at how Paul read this psalm. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul says uh, this, starting at verse 20. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It says, God has raised him up and put, him, put everything under his feet, and, and he's seated at the right hand. That's Psalm 110, is it not? But then look, at the place where Psalm 110 talks about lifting up his head, Paul tells us in Ephesians, not that Jesus lifted up his head, but he says Jesus is the head. And look what it says in verse 22, and, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. And it doesn't say he will fill the, the world with bodies. Paul says Jesus is head over everything for, his, for the church, which is his body. Do you see it? The old saviors filled the world with bodies. That's how you got rid of your enemies. Remember Samson? That's what he says. With a donkey's jawbone, I've heaped up a thousand bodies. But there's a problem. The, the old deliverers were just turning live enemies into dead enemies. Paul says Christ has a better way. He's saying Jesus has a different mission. Jesus isn't filling the world with bodies. He's filling the world with his body. And who is his body? Who's the body of Christ? We are. Look at this. The old deliverers turn living enemies into dead enemies. But Paul says Jesus isn't turning live enemies into dead enemies. Jesus is turning enemies who are dead in their trespasses and sins to life in him. Jesus is turning enemies into friends, to followers. Paul says, Jesus is destroying your rebellion, your hatred, your anger, your ignorance. And he's doing it with grace. He's doing something more powerful 
than all the old deliverers because his solution is an eternal solution. You remember Pilate, after his arrest, Jesus goes before Pilate and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus says, if his kingdom were that kind of kingdom, my followers would fight you. Jesus says, if I was just a king and not God, then I'd be more like all those other kings, all those old deliverers. I'd heap up the bodies. And remember in Matthew, at his, at his rest, Jesus asked Peter, don't you think I can call on my father and he'll send me 12 legions of angels? Don't you realize my father would give me a, an army more powerful than anything Caesar can imagine? I could heap up the bodies, but that's not what I'm here to do. And later Jesus does call on the father and he doesn't say, father, heap up the bodies. On the cross, he says, father, forgive them. And because he goes to that cross and he dies there for you and me, the Father can, and the Father does. And those enemies, you and me, us, we become his church, his body, his friends. Look what happens in Acts. The same people who were crying out for his blood, who screamed, crucify him. Fifty days later at Pentecost, they're being baptized into his body. It's radically different than anything the world had ever seen. Even today, the kings and rulers and presidents and prime ministers of the world heap up the bodies. But there's a divine king who's an everlasting priest, and he's still turning enemies into friends. He still offers the sword of grace rather than a sword of anger. He's filling the earth with his body. And what about those enemies who refuse to become friends? You say, well, 11 God would never send people to hell no matter what. And if that's you, then C.S. Lewis asks you a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs? To, to give them miraculous help? That's what he's done through Christ. Are you asking that they be forgiven? They don't want forgiveness. You can't forgive someone who doesn't want to be forgiven. We saw last week God forgave David for his sin with Bathsheba, but not, not forgiving Amnon. What's the difference? The difference was Amnon didn't seek forgiveness. He didn't repent. David repented completely. And instantly, it says, his sin was removed. Not just covered. Not just forgiven. The moment David repents, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. C.S. Lewis asked, what in the world would you ask God to do? To give them a fresh start? He has with Christ. For, to forgive them when forgiveness is not what they want? And then he goes on, to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he's done. The damned are, in one sense, successful. Rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked. But they're locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they've demanded. They're self-enslaved. Lewis is saying, if you want to live where your, your heart is the higher standard of what's right, you will. That's hell. But beware, because if your heart is the highest standard of what's right, then in hell, so is your neighbor's. And, and in hell, your neighbor might be Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot or Hitler. Elsewhere, Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, 
and those to whom God says, thy will be done. The Bible tells us the choice is ours. We can turn our hearts over to Christ and stand on his work, or we can choose the standard of our own hearts. And we can stand on our own work. For those who choose Christ, judgment day has already come, and the judge has taken the penalty. For those who choose their own God, judgment's coming, and you will receive the hell you choose. So how do we apply all this? Christianity is different than every other religion. It's about, it's not about how you come to God, it's about God coming to you. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. You have to meet Christ as the person he is. Have you done that? Or have you created a, a Messiah like the uh, religious leaders of Jesus' day? Have you allowed your doubts to overwhelm your reason? Judgments is coming. For those in him, the judge has become the justifier. For everyone else, you stand on your own righteousness. And please, I beg you to listen to this. If that's you, then it's the most important decision you're ever going to make. You owe it to yourself to get it right. And if you're in Christ, then Scripture says in a sense, you too are a king and a priest. And what's that mean? Here's what it means. Kings lead. Kings call people to faith. Kings demonstrate what it means to give yourself to Jesus. Kings go to war, but in this war, we're part of a spiritual army out to save the souls of men and women. So on the one hand, kings say to others, this is how you become a Christian. This is how you transform your life. This is how you come to know joy. On the other hand, Christians are priests. And what do priests do? Priests help the poor. Priests show up where kindness is needed. Priests serve their neighbors sacrificially, whether they agree with you or not. Did you notice verse 3? Your troops will be willing on, the day, on your day of battle. If you're a Christian, it means you're willing to serve Christ in patience, in obedience, in confidence. Sometimes we look around the world and we fret. The arrogance, the evil, the, the sickness. Doesn't God care? Why isn't he doing something? You have to be patient. Our king isn't finished making enemies into friends. And while we wait, we have to be obedient to serve. You ask why God isn't doing something? He has. He's turned you from his enemy into his ally. What's the point of filling the earth with his body if we're not going to obey and show him to, show him to those who need hope, who need healing, who need comfort, who need rescue? who desperately need what only Christ has and only we can show them. And we can do all that in confidence. Because your king judges, but your, your priest dispenses mercy. He's both just and justifier. When, when you believe in Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care if you're an axe murderer. On the cross, Jesus took your sin to himself and clothed you in his righteousness. On the cross, his holiness, his justice, his judgment coincides perfectly with his mercy, with his love, with his goodness. Don't you see? The divine king, so holy, his justice must be satisfied. But on the cross, our priest, so loving, he accepted the judgment for himself. Now, if you're in Christ, your sin's taken away. Not just covered, not just forgiven. It's removed. 
The difference between Christianity and every other, I ran across this, Mark Holmes gave a, 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 a teaching on, uh, on Christ's last words a few years ago, and I, I've thought about it a lot since then. The difference between Christianity and every other religion. Buddha's very last words to his followers before he died were these. Strive to gain your salvation. The last words of Christ on the cross could not be more difficult. Jesus says, it is finished. Look, on the cross, Jesus experienced infinite hell, so you and I never have to. The work is done. Jesus says the striving is over. There's nothing you can do. There's really nothing you ever could have done. Christ has finished the work, and that should give you rest. Let's pray. Father God, we are just so grateful that, uh, that our Christ is also our king. He's also our priest. He intercedes for us. Uh, he loves us. Uh, the judge has become the, the justifier. Father God, help us to see what that means in our lives. Help us to see that we can move out in confidence and, and assurance to help those who, who need help, to reach out, to, to touch, to heal, to love. Father God, use us as instruments in your army, not to heap up the bodies, but to save souls, to turn enemies into friends. I pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our divine King, our everlasting priest, our, our conquering deliverer. Amen. And now our benediction today comes from Revelation 5, verses 22. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Go now in blessing and power built up in Jesus Christ, our divine King, and our everlasting priest. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.